0: Hello and welcome to the Day Health Strategies Podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, the healthcare podcast where we talk everything value-based care with the top experts in the field. Welcome back to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. Again, I'm joined by my co-host, Sarah Bliss Matusik, Senior Consultant at Day Health Strategies. It's wonderful to be with you again today, Sarah. How are you doing today?
1: Great and happy to be here, as always.
0: Awesome. So, Sarah, what are we talking about today?
1: Right. So this episode is going to really focus on culture and specifically the culture, you know, potential culture clashes and cultural considerations when different entities are working together in the healthcare field.
0: So I always hear, you know, Dr. John McDonough, who we've had on this podcast before, talk about culture as the way we do things around here. So, what makes it so different between the way people do things in healthcare plans, health insurers, and, you know, providers, doctors, and hospitals? Is that kind of what we're going to be talking about today?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, that's a great example. I mean, there are lots of different types of healthcare organizations, but the ones that people probably think about most often are, you know, provider group, which could be, you know, a hospital, a doctor's office, anyone giving care, providing care and uh, payers, so insurance companies, um, groups that actually pay for that care. Um, And insurance companies technically can also, or not technically, definitely also include the government. So Medicaid is a payer. Um, Medicare is a payer at the federal level, um, but you know typically organizations, you know pay insurance companies have a, a defined set of capabilities and a defined culture, um, and payers do too. I'm sorry, providers do too. They they have their own you know way that they do things around here, and so increasingly in our system we're seeing more and more of those entities come together and be either the same or partner. And when that happens, what you have are two different cultures coming together, which is the case with any merger acquisition in any industry. As we know, local cultures in distinct organizations really matter. Um, but in healthcare, payer and provider cultures are pretty distinct and can often lead to clashes due to conflicting incentives and different historical perspectives. So
0: it really sounds like a partnership between these two very different organizations is extremely critical to the success of an ACO and in really transforming the healthcare system for both the providers and the payers. That really seems like a tall task, especially if the personalities of these organizations you know, don't really get along. But there is hope, and uh, people in this field are proving that it can be done. And, and today, you're going to be sitting down with someone who is really on the front lines of this and is using you know, the new Medicaid model in Massachusetts to bridge the gap between these two different organizations in really interesting ways.
1: So today we're going to be talking with Mike Nicky, who um, represents the payer side, if you will. Um, He's the executive director for Medicaid programs at Fallon Community Health Plan um, out in Worcester, Massachusetts, and they've been around for decades, a really well-known organization in the state. Fallon is partnering with three different ACO provider groups in the Massachusetts Medicaid ACO program, so uh, we're really excited to hear what Mike has to say because they have uh, undergone a lot of challenges and, and learned a lot of lessons from joining multiple cultures together to achieve a shared goal. Um, but before we get into that topic, I thought maybe we could take a step back and talk a little bit about health plans more broadly. Or um, I'm going to refer to them as health plans, but you might also think of them as insurers or um, payers.
0: Yeah, so why don't we start with that, Sarah? Can you tell me and the audience, you know, just broadly, what does a health plan do? You know, beyond just, you know, this ACO model that we're going to be, you know, really getting into in in this podcast, but just kind of in general, you know, when we think of insurers, everyone's got, you know, some experience with a private insurer or a public insurer, but kind of take us to the 30,000 foot view and, and what is a health plan and what do they do?
1: Right. So uh, we'll start with the definition of a health plan, and then I'll talk a little bit um, for a second about why I think we should be talking about this. So uh, the CMS definitions, or Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, they define a health plan as an individual or group plan that pays the cost of medical care. Really simple. Um, another definition is that a health plan is an entity that provides, offers, or arranges for coverage of designated health services needed by plan members for some fixed prepaid premium. So, premium is paid in and then the organization is responsible for um, paying for the care of the health services that are um, obtained by their plan members. Um, I think that's a useful definition. I'm going to take a step back um, one more time, though, and and, and just mention why we think this discussion is useful today. Um, So just a little bit of data for you. Increasingly, as I said before, healthcare provider organizations and um, payers are coming together, but providers themselves are um, and including hospitals, are seeking to own their own health plans. Um, right now, 13% of health systems offer health plans, uh, but 28% of hospitals are planning to launch their own over the next five years, so this is an increasing trend. Um, but le- you know, health plan licensure is pretty difficult to achieve, especially if a provider organization actually attempts to build all those required capabilities in-house, Rather than you know outsourcing them to a third party administrator or just simply partnering with some group, um, and so now I think we can just talk through what some of those different capabilities are, just to make it a little bit more clear. What is it that they actually do? Okay, they pay for healthcare. We know that, but what do you need to have as an organization to pay for healthcare? It's not as simple as you might think. Um, so, in order to do it, the company really needs to have um, you know first and foremost the ability to take on financial risk for that group of people that they're going to be um, paying for their health care. They have to have significant capital to fund their risk reserves. Um, They also need to be able to pull together a network of providers and then negotiate contracts with each and every one of them. And those contracts might include things like setting their rates, uh, forming and um, putting together authorization protocols, and um, just determining how they'll get paid. But before you can negotiate rates, you have to even you know, take another step back and design the plan. Um, it's a product, and they call that product design. And you have to ensure that it has the proper balance between price, consumer attractiveness, and then adverse risk selection. And then member communication is another key capability with several different aspects that you might not think about um, off, the, off the bat, but you know they have to have things like a call center, for example. Um, and then in addition to that, health plans need to have a reliable way to authorize the care that their members are trying to receive from providers, say a specialist in the network. Um, and then they have to pay those providers for their services. Um, and to do that, you need very expensive um, systems for authorization review and claims processing um, and then payments, etc. cetera. Um, so, so those are a couple of things. Um, and then I'm just going list, to list a few more just to you know, hopefully communicate that there's a pretty broad set of ex- expertise that these groups need to have in order to, to do their job, basically. I mean, they do market segmentation. They have to do actuarial pricing, which is really complicated. Um, they need to have bid capabilities. They have market segmentation capabilities. They, um, they have to have very robust uh, financial risk management um, and then they have data warehousing, analytics, and predictive modeling.
0: So if insurers are already doing this so well, you know, why is this something that providers are trying to bring in-house and, and how does that kind of help them move forward in the you know new world of value-based care?
1: Aligning incentives is something that they are certainly looking to achieve by having a health plan, but really it's a financial strategy, a perfect a perfect example of vertical integration. If you can own the health plan, then you get to reap the profits if there are any. Um, some providers are seeking to buy health plans, and others are looking to build some or all of those capabilities in house. Um, really, one of the main reasons we're seeing so much of this type of vertical integration in healthcare is because a lot of organizations feel that the future of healthcare is. A little bit uncertain and so if they own each piece then one of them will eventually win and so really it's a long-term strategy. Instead of owning a health plan another approach is to partner with one instead which is what many of the ACOs in Massachusetts are doing. Although this is less financially attractive in terms of profit potential, um, partnering with a health plan instead of owning one does have a number of distinct advantages. So, A partnership would distribute the risk Um, and be quicker to implement because the health plan would already have that appropriate infrastructure and the licenses and all those capabilities that I just talked about. Mm. Um, The startup costs are lower um, than building or buying a plan and they might even bring existing enrolled lives to the table, for example. Um, Despite these positives though, um, rate concessions are often cited as an issue. Um, They might be required because the partners would want to differentiate on price, of course, and you would lose any efficiencies that are gained when two organizations merge. In any partnership model, you have two of everything essentially. So, um, so I think that uh, the partnership model here in Massachusetts is really interesting, and um, I, I think it's even more interesting that there are seventeen different ones that we can look at <laughs> as we as we continue down this path.
0: Yeah, it really provides a, a good laboratory for experimentation here in Massachusetts. Um, I want to go back to one thing you talked about before, which is the incentives, because in healthcare, we know, you know, organizations and even individuals aren't going to do anything unless, you know, they're incentivized to do it. So how does kind of bringing these two organizations together really, you know, work towards aligning incentives or, you know, maybe what was happening before when they weren't really necessarily joining uh, with their incentives?
1: Yeah. um, So speaking in Purely financial incentives if we're just leave it at finances and we're not talking about best care um, at this point So purely financial in a fee-for-service world Payers will maximize profit if they pay as little as possible for healthcare services for their members and take in as much as Possible in premiums. This is basic economics. That makes
0: complete sense
1: um uh, and this is this is again fee for service. And so on the provider side, it's the complete opposite, right? Um, in a fee for service right. payment system, it makes it so that they want to do as much as possible and get reimbursed, um, you know, at the highest rate possible for everything that they do in order to maximize their profit. So again, we're just speaking in financial terms. Obviously, um, we know that providers don't always want to do things that are inappropriate, <laughs> or ever really. Um, and we know that payers, you know, want to pay for services that are needed, um, but the incent- the financial incentives, are there. Um, and even if they come together, you know, I think this is important to understand: the same incentives apply; um, those those things are still there, unless you change the way that healthcare is paid for.
0: Mm-hmm. I see.
1: Um, so, in the Massachusetts model, this this new ACO um, Medicaid ACO model, both the provider and the payer partner are at risk for the total cost of care. So what we've done here is shifted some of the risk onto the provider organization and didn't leave it solely in the hands of the payer. So providers, and some of them for the very first time, are actually incentivized to do less care overall for the patients they serve, as long as they're providing appropriate care and high-quality services that produce positive health outcomes. And the care that's avoided is supposed to be care that would have been considered unnecessary. So the goal is, of course, not to reduce care overall, meaning limiting the care that folks can get that they need, but to identify which care is unnecessary or inappropriate and pull that out of the system, meaning that the goal is for patients to get exactly what they need, no more and no less.
0: That's really interesting. So you're saying in these Model A ACOs, in which we're seeing a lot of in Massachusetts, you know, because the payers and the providers are partnering equally and sharing the financial risk, then their, then their financial incentives become aligned. And that's how we can really kind of incentivize them to reduce unnecessary care and really prioritize you know, positive health outcomes for their patients.
1: Correct. Yeah. And there are many ways in which these are being set up. With, without getting too far into the details, a Model A is a partnership program between a group of healthcare providers and an insurer or payer. And they all set them up a little bit differently. One is a, you know, for example, is a joint venture and there's a glide path to risk for the provider organizations. Others, um, I think, launch straight into more risk on the provider side. So there are different ways that it's being set up. But over the course of the five years, increasing risk on the provider side is what's really um, unique and different about this model. And that's why the incentives are now going to be more aligned.
0: So today, we're going to get into this in a much deeper way because you got the chance to sit down with Mike Nicky, the Executive Director for Medicaid Programs at Fallon Community Health Plan. And he's really the perfect person to speak to about this because he's been on the forefront of this in Massachusetts negotiating agreements between his health plan and the various different provider groups that they partner with across the state to form ACOs. Uh, Is that really what we should be looking forward to for your conversation with him?
1: Absolutely. And then all the cultural challenges that come with it. So, yep
0: all right excellent but before we jump into your interview with mike i do want to give our listeners a little heads up that in typical new england fashion our studio experienced a quick summer rain shower and you may hear some soothing background rain in the middle of the interview you know our attempt to bring a little zen to health policy all right sarah to the interview
1: Um, so we're just going to dive right in. Thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you on um, to get the payer perspective. But um, actually, and this is a little bit ad hoc, but um, do you want to say a little bit about what you did before this? Because um, I know that you've got background in other industries, too, to bring to bear to the conversation.
2: Sure. Well, I actually started my career as an environmental engineer. So I actually worked in that oh, field for uh, <laughs> a long time. Um, but that actually really what kind of set me up to do regulatory programs, government compliance, process flows, and things like that. Um, since that time, I've worked on Medicare programs. I've worked on commercial insurance, uh, the healthcare exchanges here in Massachusetts when they launched, and then the last six, seven years, Medicaid programs.
1: Okay, great. All right, so all the Medicaid experience we need. Um, so we're talking about culture today, about the culture change required to move into value-based Care um, at a higher level, but using the Massachusetts Medicaid ACO model as an example, um, because for the Model A's, for example, they had to um, bring together payers and um, providers in a new sort of unique partnership model. Um, So, how would you describe, let's start very high level, the culture of an ideal healthcare organization that's successfully doing value based care?
2: Sure, and I would say. It's actually the ideal. In you know, the we do live in an ideal world. It's actually on both sides. It's actually the payer and the provider. Uh, one of the big things you have to be is willing to fail, mm-hmm. and then willing to readjust, uh, because the really the the task that we're all trying to accomplish is really a large one and a very complex one. So. Uh, if at the end of the day, you're not willing to sort of course correct as you go along, you are going to have problems because you really have to be very nimble and willing to say, you know, we, we spent a lot of money on this and guess what, it was a dead end. Uh, and I think the other thing that really is imperative is that people be collaborative and want to work together with other partners and not just the payer and not just the, the partner in the joint venture or the, the joint governance, but actually other groups like behavioral health providers and advocates and certainly the state because it is a program that is very dependent upon a lot of moving parts. And most of those parts are actually outside the health insurer and they're actually outside the primary care office. So you really have to be able or at least um, willing to try to improve that flow of information and process, which is really uh, difficult in the best of circumstances, um, whether you're in Medicaid or not.
1: So I'm hearing, you know, things like. You know, collaborative, you know, being willing to be a team player, that sort of thing, which is not easy in the healthcare sector, or maybe not in any healthcare sector or any other sector. Um, all right, so describe for us, practically speaking, because we're doing some education on the Medicaid program. Um, just to make sure that the audience really understands what it is that we're even talking about here, the partnership model between the providers and the managed care organizations um, in this ACO model. So for example, how would you divide responsibility? How do you decide who's even in charge of different things? Um, And can you give us an example of how you work together or make decisions collaboratively?
2: Sure. So in the beginning, Fallon works with three different ACOs and they actually look different. Uh So, our three ACOs are not identical in actually the way we do many things, although there are similarities. The way Fallon approached um, working with our partners is we actually started with, here's our guess. These are things we think you want us to work on, which tend to be very operational enrollment, uh, call center functions, uh, contracting functions, and here's the things we think you really want to work on. And then there's these things in the middle that, you know, do you actually want to do the model of care and actually do all the case management, or do you want some functions to remain at Fallon for conditions that are more um, uncommon, like transplants. Yep. Where even a large ACO may have two people, it's not worth having a nurse dedicated just to that program. And that actually starts a dialogue of really, uh, this ACO wants to do it this way, this ACO wants to do it that way. And you actually parse out sort of the functionality. I would say it's a general rule, uh, at least in Fallon's ACOs, we do a lot of the operational work. We do most of the direct interaction with MassHealth. Uh, a lot of the data sort of manipulation, transfer, um, all the payment to other providers, both inside and outside the ACO, and a lot of the day-to-day interactions with the state. Because there's just a tremendous amount of uh, back and forth. Um, but you know we did actually all work together on the applications because the applications are gigantic for those folks who haven't seen them printed, and each application is unique to each ACO. So really, as you're kind of building out your application, you're deciding on who's doing what, and that really helped us kind of decide Uh, Each of the ACOs is led by a joint governance structure that is actually predominantly providers, or in some cases, all providers. And then there's just different functionality of charters and those things that sound very um, process-oriented, but they're really essential because you're really saying, well, who's going to do what, and who decides what, and who can sign what. Um, But once you actually kind of get past that, it actually becomes a lot more fluid, Yeah. Um, and and you really start to know everyone, and you kind of know who's kind of on first base, and you kind of know... What you need to run by who to get it done. And it actually happens much more organically yep. um, once you kind of get moving and in flight.
1: Okay, that's really helpful. Um, and from our vantage point, I, I remember the seventeen binders for one application. So they're they're um, onerous, although necessary to to divide up. You know who's going to do what and what this is actually going to look like. Um, all right, so that's helpful. Um, Why don't you, and I I love the perspective that you bring from working with three ACOs that are three very different ACOs um, for the audience. One is in the west of Massachusetts, one's in the middle, and one's in the east. So you actually span the entire state, which is really helpful um, for perspective. So talk to us about how these very different entities, um, had to come together and work towards a singular goal and purpose. Um, and what has had to happen to make that successful? Um, and then maybe just talk for a minute on what has been, say from your, ex- your, uh, perspective, the most challenging thing.
2: Uh, I'd say two of our are very similar in that they are sort of a federation of entities that aren't really one corporate entity. Mm-hmm. They may have a lot of, um, overlap, they may have a lot of affiliations, and there may be some sort of corporate structure there. But there are large components, like community health centers, which are independent entities, that actually are out there. So in those cases, they really have to come together first. And they actually have to agree upon what they want and who they want to work with, which is uh, including their selection of of Fallon. So that's sort of a, a real critical piece of sort of how they divide responsibility, because they aren't one corporate entity. And we had that with two of our ACOs. We had one ACO that um, the provider partners actually founded Fallon Health 40 years ago. So we've been doing Medicaid with them for 40 years in a risk sharing arrangement. And they have a staff model. So it's three or four people can make the decision for the entire organization of 1,200 PCPs. So it's a very, very different different model. So for them, it's much more around optimizing what was in place. Uh, Maybe in the new model, moving some things from Fallon to their purview. Yep. Um, and away from the plan, things that they always wanted to control, but in the past they didn't have the ability to do so, uh, and invest in things that with a district mountain that allowed them to take on some of those functionalities. Uh, I think once you kind of get beyond those parties sort of deciding kind of how they want to govern it, it really gets down to sort of knowing who the key decision makers are and for what. So you can have a very strong... Um, leader who's really focused on the financial perspective and the contracting perspective with the state, which is essential, and the regulatory piece. Um, But then you have the whole clinical model, and those folks are really rarely ever the same person, which is a whole different discussion. And then you get, well, how are we going to brand this? Is it a Fallon product? Is it an ACO-specific product? And that's a whole different group of people. Um, Who's in the network, who's not? Um, All of our ACOs have providers who are not part of sort of the ACO with risk who are in the network, which means they're taking risk on providers who aren't even aligned with them. Uh, That can be a very heated debate sometimes of who gets added to a network when you compete with them as a provider. Uh, So there's a lot of those discussions that have to happen and you start to realize very quickly there are multiple audiences. But what I will say is critical is that each of the ACOs, uh, over time, there's been one key person who is sort of the shepherd of the product and really owns the product on the ACO side and someone who owns the product on the Fallon side. That kind of keeps things moving because there's so much day-to-day. Yep. Um, that seems small, but it adds up to be a lot. Uh, it's easy to tension attention on the real big issues, yeah. but they really don't make the program successful. They keep us sort of on track,
1: Yeah, yeah. not moving forward. That's what made it successful. I love what you just said about the shepherd of everyone. You know, I can sort of picture, you know, various different committees or work groups that are working on all these different things that need to happen, but have different voices in the fray, but having one singular, you know, not necessarily even a decision maker, but someone who's got all the knowledge and understanding to cross, um, you know, cross communicate. Um, so what's been the most challenging? Is, is it that?
2: <laughs> I would say <laughs> getting um, the decision-making process for MassHealth is extremely short, it, you know, and they, they ask for a lot of information, understandably, but very often, you know, you'll get an email on Monday and there'll be a 48-hour turnaround, and it, it's not always an easy answer. Sometimes yeah. there's actually policy for the ACO to deal with or it actually has some pretty significant impact on providers. Uh, What may seem like a simple, well, how do we do referrals? We'll just submit it this way. Well, that may, you'll live with that for five years. So there's a lot of um, very quick decision-making, which can be very difficult in organizations that are very um, diffuse in the decision-making and maybe don't have centralized decision-making at all. Yeah. Um, So there really isn't one person because there's never been a decision that had to be made by one person. That's really the hardest part.
1: Yep. And uh,
2: every time you add someone into a process, they may have a different perspective. So you, you wind up revisiting a lot of decisions until you kind of get used to the process.
1: OK, that's really helpful I can, and completely understandable. We've heard that from a lot of different groups about the challenges of you know, pivoting and responding. Is the, the fact of the matter is that, especially the Model A type ACOs, there are a lot of people involved in every one of them. And so being nimble and quick to make decisions has been a real challenge. Um, but I think they've done pretty well thus far. I agree. Um, so, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about what strengths that health plans specifically bring to the model. Um, I've heard from a couple of folks, um, actually in other states, that, you know, really believe strongly in health plans' ability to harness data, for example, I'm, I'm sure I'd love to hear your, your um, perception on that piece specifically, but, you know, generally speaking, what kind of strengths do you think they bring to the table for this type of model?
2: I think you know some of them are really just very basic. Just the, the you know a claim system is millions of dollars um, um, to run every single year. A call center is very expensive to set up, and we have this infrastructure for multiple product lines. And I'd say very few organizations really want to run a call center, yeah. or you know learn about claims or learn how to bill um, you know a specific way or have to or have to do the contracting. There really is no value add to a provider who's really interested in delivering care. So to kind of actually have someone else do that with infrastructure that's already been paid for over the last couple decades makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'd also say for our three ACOs, they really weren't used to dealing with MassHealth in such a direct way. They were providers of MassHealth, they would bill MassHealth, and they would get paid by MassHealth. But sort of how does MassHealth build up the rates? And how do the risk corridors work? And sort of what are the rules of the road? And how does the program operate? And what does an audit look like? And there's a lot of that sort of piece of the program they really never had exposure to, and they really kind of wanted someone else to kind of take sort of the MassHealth piece and help kind of guide them through the process. Um, Certain providers definitely want a lot of data um, crunching, a lot of data analytics. I have a meeting on Thursday with one of our ACOs to go go through a whole suite of reports to show them how they're doing. Um, Others actually really want us to compare them to their other ACOs. Oh, really? (laughs) So MassHealth does some of that. but. They really want us to say, like, hey, when we look at our other ACOs, we can kind of tell you what best practice is. And our three ACOs are generally very good about being willing to say, hey, do you mind if we speak to them about giving an example of something we think you're doing really good with DISRU. And we'd really like you to kind of think about that. Um, and that's valuable to them because they understand that we see it in a context, and we can actually kind of understand, is it really going to work? Because we kind of know the risk of the members. We see the claims. So we can really tell them, this is a good peer group, or this is really, this is so different than what you what you have or what you experience, that really helps them a lot. Yep. Uh, Increasingly, I think the providers are starting to see us as maybe an opportunity to work together with our other ACOs as well. When we have to talk to Mass Health as a group, because today everything is very siloed. Each ACO is sort of on its own. There isn't really an industry association. Um, But very often, we have common cause. Um, And sort of a smaller thing, though. although I think that probably comes into play far more often than not, is because we're involved with all three ECOS. There are so many submissions, as you know, um, and a lot of documentation, and there's a lot of back and forth with MassHealth. That isn't you just send it and they accept it. Um, they really depend, um, someone on my team that can help them say, I know that didn't go through, maybe we really want to think about it this way. Yeah. Because this way, I think, you know, MassHealth seems to understand, you know, the concept when it's described this way, or, you know, we've learned, um, you know, through other conversations that, you know, what they're really concerned about is this, and I think that might be the same concern here. So we're kind of sharing some of those um, lessons yeah. of, of submissions of data that really help folk understand that, you know, this is maybe the, maybe the way to approach it. Um, I think that's helpful as well, because I think a lot of the ACOs are a little bit hesitant because they're kind of out there on their own, and they really don't have a way of, of knowing how they're even doing or if what they're doing is working until, you know, a year, year and a half, two years down the road. And they're, they're looking for a lot faster feedback. That. That's why I think our data is more immediate and it's also more sudden.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I've heard from others that um, getting some more real-time data is like a brave new world for them um, You know, as opposed to the, you know, three months late claims, you know, that's that aren't maybe completely accurate and they're trying to at least glean as much as they can from it. Um, so that's been really helpful. Yeah, we have
2: one there. provider we're working very closely with, and really up to this point, they had never received data on their MassHealth membership.
1: Yeah, I've heard that multiple times.
2: But so when we actually went into this, they really didn't know even what their data was. Yeah. Until they got it from MassHealth. So for them, their um, person I work there is a really uh, aggressive data person, and really is a CFO by training and by function in their current role. So they really want to see the data, and they really want to know, and they really want to know how they can do better. But in the past, it was always just sort of, well, a contract negotiation around rates. Yeah. So now they actually can see everything. Our providers use actually our um, case management system as well. So they see all the notes. They see all the auths um, system. So there's a lot more transparency around what's going on in the past, where it was sort of, well, we were going to fax... The health plan on the sky, and they're to come back with a yes or no. Now there's actually dialogue. If they disagree, well, I'll get a call from a medical director, actually discuss it with a medical director to say, hey, this is the story here with this patient, and you know the clinical notes aren't the whole story, and we really actually want to keep them in, in patient for a bit longer because we just know things aren't settled at home, yeah. and we're we're discharging to a situation that's only going to bring them back in 24 hours. We just need another couple of days to get this right sided with the with the social worker and you know that's very valuable on the plant side we would never know that
1: yeah yeah we just
2: be we deny it because it didn't have justification and now there's a lot more dialogue which is very helpful
1: yeah yeah so it sounds like you're you're able to better pull together lots of different pieces of information to paint a better picture about what's going on and you know specific cases to make better decisions for the patients or members right. as you will um, so last question because I don't want to take up too much of your time um, as we move forward, I, do you have advice for other organizations that are in this brave new world with you? Um, and secondly, these are two parts, what does success look like in, you know, it's a five-year program, but at any point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I would say my advice is to be both patient and impatient at the same time. I think some of the areas of the mass health program that are the most costly and, um, most problematic for the state that they're trying to address uh, trying to address like behavior health integration. That sounds great. I think Every, no one would say let's not integrate care. It is very difficult to do in real time. Absolutely. And uh, there will be no perfect solution or, or perfect idea. So you really have to be willing to try something, um, but you have to be willing to admit to yourself if it's not working, we got to move on quicker. Because five years sounds like a long time, we're already a year in practically, right? So at this point, um, you really have to be patient that you can't fix everything at once. And I think that's a lot of the dialogue uh, I've been having with my ACO partners is, okay, there are all these different things you want to spend on district, but what are the two or three things we really, based off the data, need to tackle right away because the rates are going to get tighter and tighter for your providers. We want to make sure And then about a bad experience. So the best thing we can do is these are the areas where we see like this doesn't make sense to us. This seems really out of whack. Um, you know, I have one provider we're finding one of their biggest challenges are they have no wet shelter in their county.
1: County? Correct.
2: So as a result, um, they are struggling with, they get a lot of folks coming to eat and to shower and to be clean. That's a, you know, very real need. That's not, that's somewhat beyond the scope of the ACO, but not really because it's, it's one of the biggest issues of the frequent flyers in the area they're looking for food. And they're looking. to get some clothes. They can get other things. That's a real need, and that's a that is a to say it's a social determinant of health. It's like a flashing red social determinant of health in this community. I should say in this community, but in the county, it's pretty much the way the population is distributed in this county. It's sort of all in one area. If you're not there, it's it's a real problem. Um, that's a real challenge, right? So that's a, a totally something that health plan would be sort of aware of. But what would we do about it? We're really trying to think with other community organizations in this community. What can we do about it?
1: And before there wouldn't be any way to pay for it and now right. it's I mean, everyone's aligned so so you those those sessions. are the
2: kinds of things that we continue uh, to work on with one of our other ACO partners we're, we're building a uh, food pantry with inside the practice okay. so that's a big business but other not-for-profits working with this ACO partner because it, we actually think this is a real need for this community and it will actually be within the provider facility so that's, again, an example of something we never would have probably been able to do in the past, but it's been identified as one of the key drivers of um, concern for this provider, and we're going to take a swing at it and see if this helps.
1: So much fun, all these you know, new ways to do things. <laughs> yeah, it's, a- <laughs> it's hard to get them done, but it's fun to think, about, you know, think outside the box about what can be done to affect health. Um, okay, so what does success look like?
2: I think success will be different year by year. Um, I think success at the end of year one is really uh, ideally about total cost of care because that's the goal. But I I think the state's trying to just get people to be about average to really where they were at least last year, not much worse, with a little bit of savings. But year one to me is really around the collaboration between the partners uh, and the model. And I would say identify the areas that are not working, the things that are working you really want to kind of speed up and then really kind of working with the state, what aspects of the program maybe aren't working. We really don't want to have five years of carrying it, maybe a, a program design that seemed perfect at the time and the real world is just, isn't going to come together. Uh, you know, certainly by the end of the program, it's can we really save money without damaging the providers? Um, you know, I take it very seriously after meeting a lot of providers over the last two years, many of them are stretched economically very thin. You know, we very much have a have and have not, um, to some extent, system in Massachusetts, where some providers have a lot of um, infrastructure and a, and a lot more resources and, and grants and others are really struggling. Um, and the last thing I want to do is damage a provider, or cause a provider to you know, have to cut back services in their community because of risk sharing in an ACO arrangement. So to me, success is stabilizing those providers um, and at least not having them being worse off than they would have been before. Yeah. You know, save money, but I don't want that to come at the expense of, sort of the stability of the provider network, especially in more rural parts of the state, are providers that meet demographics um, that are very hard to find providers, very hard to find providers providers who speak Vietnamese. You know, those are the kind of things, if you bankrupt that provider, the nearest provider who speaks that native language may be you know, up in Lowell. And if you live in Medford, that's really not that helpful to you, right? So those are the kind of things I, I deem successes. do no harm, I sound like a provider, um, but really... Um, you know, saving the state money, and I think that's modest money. I don't think it's a, it's a huge amount. I'd also say if we get better at behavioral health integration, um, even if it's moderately uh, better, I actually think we have got to get better at the social determinants of health.
1: Yes. Um, it is a
2: huge issue. Um, it is something very hard to address through the normal way healthcare is done. I think this is a, a possibility in the ACO model, but the district goes away. So I think we really need to be able to find a way to prove that addressing some of these things outside the exam room or outside the ER um, are really the way to save costs. Um, but we also have to find a way to pay for that. And I think that can be done, but only if we really show there's a, there's a return to CMS. Absolutely. If we don't do that, I think when the money runs out, it'll be sort of, you know, the ACOs are great, and now we're going to go back to an MCO program. Or now we're going to go back into something else. We're direct first contracting with the providers or something else. And that will have been a shame because of all the money that was spent. Um, And I certainly hope success would be best practices surface and are shared. Um, I think we're in a very competitive industry. Providers are very competitive. Payers are very competitive. And I think that sometimes prevents best practices from circulating.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. And we look forward to hearing more over the next uh, five years with how this thing is going, um, and especially in this first year as things are happening very quickly. Um, so thanks.
0: Welcome. Wow. Thanks so much for treating us to a fascinating conversation, Sarah. It is really just so interesting to hear from someone like Mike, who has a wealth of experience working with health insurers and is now really managing the partnerships with three very different ACOs across the state. I'm not sure you could have spoken to anyone in Massachusetts who is more immersed in the technical details of what it takes to launch these ACO partnerships.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. I think some of my key takeaways from the conversation um, are in sort of three categories. One's like my nugget of gold, which I'll save for the end, but one positive takeaway is that you know ACOs, especially with all that new money flowing in with the district dollars, really is allowing plans and providers to rethink who who's doing what. They're being very collaborative and um, thinking outside the box about you know what needs to get done and who should be doing it and what makes the most sense, not what's always been done this way. Um, so that's the positive takeaway. And then he offered two pieces of advice that I think is you know really helpful. I'm going to kind of file it away for myself, but also for you know all the organizations that we work with. Be patient and impatient at the same time. I really like that he said that. Um, you know be patient with what you need to, but also push, push, push on the things that you should and try to get data and information quickly so that we can prove value and um, continue to do this even after that district money goes away. And then um, needing to remember to be willing to fail and then readjust. Um, I thought that was really helpful advice. Um, It's, you know, pretty commonsensical, but um, always helpful to hear again. And then my negative gold um, key takeaway is, and this I've experienced over and over again, determining who the decision makers are and all the groups being clear on that um, is crucial um, because decisions need to be made quickly. Over the last year, so many things have happened to get this program off the ground and, you know, thousands of decisions had to be made. Um, and when you're pulling multiple different groups together, um, they need to be made pretty quickly. So making sure the right people are at the table and then who is making those decisions is, um, as I said, crucial, but, you know, needs to happen early. I think that was, a, um, you know, something that I'm calling it my nugget of gold because it's true based on our experience. And I think it's really helpful to understand and um, implement.
0: It's going to be really fascinating to see, you know, as this unrolls over the next five years and undoubtedly, you know, strong leadership and, and people who can really drive this program forward are going to really determine, you know, which ACOs are successful and, and which organizations do end up, you know, providing the, the highest quality care and, and kind of reducing the cost that we're hoping to see. And, and you know, that's why we really are having people like Mike Nikki on this podcast to kind of highlight, you know, what that good leadership looks like. Yeah. And so I hope that you all continue to join us here on Unlocking Accountable Care as we will continue to be talking about what great leadership looks like and what it what it really takes to kind of open up and unlock accountable care um, as we move forward. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, everyone. If you are interested in learning more about accountable care or how organizations can succeed in today's healthcare system, please visit our website, www.dayhealthstrategies.com, Check out our blog, follow us on Twitter, and join our mailing list. We regularly post content relevant to current healthcare issues and overcoming challenges in delivering value-based care. Unlocking Accountable Care is a production of Day Health Strategies. Direction and editing by Max Blumenthal. Additional support and research by Emily Eibel and Nico Lehman. Our producer is Rosemarie Day. Special thanks to Purple Planet Music for the use of their songs.